Hey, it, it's Thanksgiving Sunday. Uh, we've got the acorns and the oak leaves, and some of you have dinner in the oven, and and we join with families all across the nation in recognizing and honoring a holiday that that has secular roots, but also has deep currents of spiritual wisdom in that. Uh, it's one of the themes that runs like a uh, like a deep river all the way through Scripture. And it's sort of that perspective that I want to spend some time reflecting with you this morning. Uh, you know, there are lots of therapeutic benefits to a posture of gratitude, uh, but it's not so much that as a uniquely Christian worldview or posture for thanksgiving. And again, this is a theme that weaves its way all the way through Scripture. Let me give you some examples. Paul says to his friends at a church in the ancient city of Thessalonica, rejoice always, pray continually, and here it is, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will. This is his design for your life. Gratitude is a way of seizing upon part of God's plan for the way we were meant to live. He says to the church in Ephesus, make music from your heart. What a great expression. For those who are in worship as we are, make music with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then most famously, perhaps, to the church at ancient Colossae, he talks about this theme three different times in one brief passage, Colossians three, fifteen to 17. Be thankful, he says, right off the bat. Be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly. Teach and admonish each other with wisdom through psalms and hymns and, and songs of the Spirit, just as we've done this morning. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. CBC ran a program uh, that I was listening to over the weekend. It was a uh, an interview with a parenting expert. Parents, beware of parenting experts. I'm not sure there is any such thing, but this, uh, this expert was talking about the potential dangers in imposing the values of gratitude on young children, teaching them to say thank you and, uh, and the niceties of conversation because it's asking them to connect with an emotion that they may not feel, that they're not capable of experiencing gratitude. Uh, Again, beware parenting experts. Uh, on the contrary, I, I think that training for gratitude, developing the rhythms and the habits that foster a life of thanksgiving is one of the uniquely Christian experiences. And that's sort of the, the direction that we're headed this morning. We're going to try an exercise in the sermon because sometimes, you know, during the sermon, your mind is going to drift. So this morning, at least, I hope it drifts toward gratitude. On the back page of your pumpkin-colored bulletin, you find the sermon notes page. It's blank because that's the way my mind was this week, right? <laughs> no, what it is is an opportunity to, to be able to, during the course of the message, to test out some of the things that we're saying. I'm going to present to you a number of hypotheses. And during the message, if God is nudging you with something that you're feeling in response, write that down. 
take out a pen or pencil and jot it down. It could be things that you're grateful for, thoughts around this topic of gratitude, uh, just wisdom that you're feeling coming from God within. So here it is, my first hypothesis for the week. More gratitude will not come from more acquisitions. More gratitude will not come from more acquisitions, but more awareness of God's goodness and God's presence. And again, we're not talking so much about the therapeutic benefit of gratitude, but about the unique Christian framework for understanding it. There's this wonderful writer, Christian writer named Robert Roberts, who talked about this unique Christian framework for gratitude. By the way, if your name were Robert Roberts, how grateful would you be for what your parents did to you? Anyway, but it's important to know what gratitude is. He says gratitude is the perception of the good. You cannot manufacture it by willpower, he admits, though a lot of people have tried. It's always a byproduct of a way of seeing things, of a, of a certain worldview that we have. And it always involves these three factors. And here's the shorthand for remembering them. They are all based on a Latin word, the word for good. The word is bene. Say that. Bene. It means good. Gratitude always involves these three benes. First, gratitude involves a benefit. Benefit, right? In order for me to be grateful, I have to receive a gift, and I must perceive that that gift is something good to receive. I find it favorable. The Bible has lots to say about this. Psalm 103, for example, praise the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, right? He who forgives your sins and heals your diseases and redeems your life from the pit and crowns you above all with love and compassion and satisfies your desire for good things. Should be writing stuff down now, right? Because, I mean, it's God who does this. And we don't forget the benefits. Our lives were filled with benefits from God and we're blind to them much of the time, right? Gratitude requires that we recognize them and that we know that they're good. It's a benefit. The second factor required in, in authentic Christian gratitude is a benefactor. Benefactor. Uh, the word factory that we have in English, a place where things are produced, are manufactured, that's the same word. To, to be a benefactor means to be someone who produces good things. So to be grateful, you must not just believe that there are benefits that are coming your way, but you have to believe that these things aren't happening at random. They're not just an accident, that they come from someone and that that someone has good intentions towards you. They're a benefactor in your life. If I'm going to be grateful, I must believe about God what so many of the writers of the Bible were absolutely convinced to be the truth, that, that he is a divine benefactor. James makes the statement, and he says it beautifully. You might want to write this down. James 1, 16, 17 says, Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. It's an expression of his goodness. God exists, and he's giving to us. He is a benefactor. And then there's this third element contributing to gratitude. There has to be a benefit, there has to be a benefactor, and then there has to be a beneficiary. Yeah, you caught that one, right? 
that's you, that's, that's me. We are the beneficiary, the recipients of the gifts of God who has our best interests at heart. To be a beneficiary is a crucial facet. For there to be gratitude, beneficiaries must believe they're receiving something that they did not merit, that they did not deserve. Gratitude, in that sense, always has a posture of humility, right? If I believe that I'm owed something, that I'm entitled to it, that I've earned it, gratitude doesn't flow as a result. Imagine for a second that that somebody handed you the keys to a car. Here it is. It's yours. No reason for it. You weren't expecting it. It's It's just there. How would you feel, right? Oh, my goodness. I can't believe you're doing this for me. I'm so grateful. I'm overwhelmed. Not sure. Test it out. Give me a car, someone. I'll, no, no. no. But uh, imagine then you go to a dealership and after the lengthy process of closing the deal and signing the, all of that paperwork, you agree to a 96-month lease through which I don't know whether you're going to owe the car, own the car or it will own you, but, but you're given the keys to the vehicle. And you might say, that's fine, okay, thank you for your help. But you're not going to say, thank you for this incredible gift. I'm so overwhelmed because you feel like you bought it, right? And you're going to be paying for it forever. Part of the, part of the fatal flaw of the human race is, is this sense we have that we're naturally entitled, that the gifts coming into our lives rightfully belong to us. And the more we think we're entitled to, the less grateful we're going to be. So we wonder, why is it that we get more and more and more and express less and less gratitude? The bigger our sense of entitlement, the smaller our sense of gratitude. And here's the thing, my sinful mind can convince me that I am entitled to just about anything that I want. And if I don't get it, I'll make excuses. I'll blame other people. They must have messed up. They owe me. It ought, have, it ought to have worked out a different way. This has led in our generation to a proliferation of the most ridiculous lawsuits, trying to capitalize on that sense of entitlement. We don't get it, so somebody's to blame. We'll sue them. Not too long ago, the San Francisco Giants were sued for passing out gifts on Father's Day and giving them only to the men. Right? A psychic filed suit and was awarded $986,000 when she claimed that a doctor's CAT scan impaired her psychic abilities. Which makes you wonder, if she really were a psychic, would she not have known not to go that, yeah. But here's the thing, within this Christian framework of understanding gratitude, ingratitude isn't just a psychological problem, it's not just a societal symptom or pathology, it's a sin. Paul says it's the hallmark of a life lived in opposition to God. Some of you are parents, right? You don't want to raise ungrateful children. Neither does God. Speaking about that life opposed to God, here's how Paul describes it. This is Romans 1 and verse 21. He said that although we knew God, we neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. 
Instead, our thinking became futile. What was going on? They perceived themselves to be owed. They didn't see themselves as the grateful recipients of grace. And the Bible has a word to describe this condition. It doesn't use the word ingratitude. It uses a synonym. The word is grumbling. Grumbling. Paul says that grumbling is the quintessential mindset of a life without God. Now, I know it's hard to imagine anybody within the church grumbling, right? But, but Paul had heard about this spirit of complaint, this spirit of grumbling going on to one of, the, one of the churches that he'd planted in Corinth. And so he wrote to them. He wrote to them about an episode long in their past when, when Israel was found at the foot of Mount Sinai doing what? Grumbling. There's that word. God had been so good to the Israelites. He gave them their freedom. He'd taken care of them. He gave them this unique expression of what life was meant to look like in the world, the commandments. And they just kept grumbling. He led them to the promised land, and they grumbled about it. They weren't grateful. This is what he says. Paul says to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10, Do not grumble as they once did and were killed by the avenging angel. How many of you have grumbled and are just getting a little sense of uneasiness right now, right? Jesus knew and modeled a life of gratitude. What I'd like to do as we sort of train for this, as we test it out, is to look at a few of the episodes in his life. To look at it kind of like an experiment. Every devout Jewish person, and this is how Jesus was raised. It's in turn how he discipled those that were entrusted to him. Every devout Jewish person was devoted to two forms of daily prayer at a minimum. One was called the Shema. The Shema is the Hebrew verb, the first verb in arguably the most famous and important scripture for a Jewish person. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. So important, so pivotal was that statement to them that they actually wrote it down and they put it in little tubes which they strapped to their forearms and sometimes their forehead and they put it over their doorpost. It was the Shema and they would pray it every day. It was the defining statement of who God was and who they were in relation to him. The other form of prayer that they would pray, and they did this three times a day, was called the 18, or the complete name for it was the 18 benedictions. There's that word again, benedictions. And you can parse that word too. Bene, good, diction, good word, or good speech. 18 good words that they would pray. In Hebrew, a benediction always began, that prayer always began with the word bless. To bless is to speak good into somebody else's life. When we say, God bless you, what we're really saying is, may good things happen for you, and may they happen from the hand of God. And so they would pray these 18 benedictions. They'd wake up in the morning, they'd say, blessed are you, God. And at night before they went to bed, they'd pray, blessed are you, God. In the middle of the day, they'd pause and they'd pray, blessed are you, Lord, who abundantly forgives. And they would enrich often that simple phrase, blessed are you. 
And rabbis, one of the things that they would do is they gathered followers around them. They would teach them how to expand on that simple prayer, blessed are you, Lord. So they'd say, blessed are you, Lord, who heals the sick. God is the one behind my health. They'd say, blessed are you, Lord, who sustains the living and raises the dead. I have hope. What they're really doing as they're discipling their followers is training them in gratitude. Real life, abundant life involves gratitude. And it didn't come for them in the accumulation of stuff. That's that's the insane folly of our lives. Gratitude comes when you see this reality and that all of it comes from this great benefactor of whom we are all the marvelous grace-given beneficiaries. So they'd pray the 18 three times a day. They'd pray at an extra time on the Sabbath. They didn't have to work, so they thank God for that, right? These benedictions, they were also called, another name for it was the Amidah, which means standing, because they would always pray them standing up. Why? A simple reason. They didn't want to drift off. They didn't want to fall asleep. They didn't want to be cavalier about it. So they would stand and pray. And they would discuss among themselves the best way to pray them. Rabbis would say, for example, never pray the 18 where you're riding on a donkey. That's curious, right? But here's what they're thinking is. They didn't want you to feel lofty or elevated or, or high above others. If that's what you would feel on a donkey, I'm not sure. But, but the idea is you get your feet on the ground. Maybe you need to get your knees on the ground and you pray this in humility. And they would gather regularly at the temple to pray the 18. In fact, you see this a lot when you read between the lines in the New Testament. Acts chapter 3 says, One day Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer in 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's when they would gather and pray the 18. They'd do it at the temple. Because the temple was for them a reminder of the presence of God. Right? This was the expression of God's desire that I will be your God and you'll be my people. It's that God with us life. The temple was a picture of that. And so people would gather there and they'd pray the 18. And if you couldn't go there, you would at least honor it and you would try and turn your body in the direction of where the temple was and you'd pray. And then rabbis would write about what happens if you're directionally impaired. You don't know what way that is. They would say, for example, if you're sitting in the belly of a ship, at least turn your heart in the direction of the Holy of Holies. Here's the thing, though. Every rabbi would teach their disciples his own Talmudim, which is their own way of praying the 18. When Jesus' disciples caught him one day and says, Lord, teach us how to pray. This is what they're asking. How should we pray? What's our way of naming the 18 blessings before God. And the Lord's Prayer, many people have said, is the 18 in summary form. There's an expanded form for prayer. There is a summary form. But listen to how it begins. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. Sometimes we say hallowed. Same word. The early church would pray the Lord's Prayer. Surprise? Three times a day. Morning, afternoon, and night. 
Gratitude didn't stop just with the 18. Every meal was an occasion to express gratitude. Food was never eaten until it was remembered before God. They didn't just inhale it after some perfunctory prayer. They would stop. A rabbi said that that a, a man or woman must not taste anything until they have blessed it. And they weren't so much blessing the food as they were blessing God who gives it, the great beneficiary. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof, everything that the earth produces. In fact, they were so serious about this activity that they taught that if you forgot to bless God for the gift of food in your life, you had to go back to the place where you ate your meal and stop there and pray. It's a way of teaching you not to forget again. It wasn't enough if you were on a journey and you were 10 miles out by donkey, to stop there and pray. You had to go all the way back as a way of saying, I'm going to remember that this is important. I don't know. Have you ever been to the Olive Garden? Right? Yeah. Aren't you grateful to God that there is the Olive Garden? I don't know why it disappeared in Canada, but imagine we still held to this belief today. And you realize that you forgot to give thanks for your meal at the Olive Garden. Here's what you'd have to do. You'd have to go all the way across the border again to the Walden Galleria in Buffalo. You'd have to find the people who are sitting at the table you were sitting at. Ask them to be excused for just a minute so that you could sit down in the spot and say, Oh God, thank you. The general principle that governed their whole life was that life was meant to be lived in this posture of blessing and thanks for every gift. The rabbis would say, those who enjoy anything from creation which is without blessing commit a misuse. It was a form of theft, they thought. And all of this marked the life of Jesus. And again, we see it when we read carefully in Scripture. At the Last Supper, we're told he took bread and after he had given thanks, blessed it. He broke it and gave to them. Then he took a cup, and after he had given thanks, every time something new was brought to the table, the first act was a gesture of blessing and thanks. They had a blessing for everything, you know. It wasn't just for mealtimes. They had a blessing when they lit a lamp. Because, I mean, what a gift light is when night comes, right? And so they would say, blessed are you, God, the Father of all lights. They had a blessing for when they saw a comet. How cool is that? They had a blessing for looking out at the ocean. Aren't you glad God made oceans? And cruises. (laughs) They had a blessing for visiting a holy place. They had a blessing for visiting the bathroom. Because some of you know when that part of your life stops working properly, it's awful, right? Thank you, God, that we have these bodies that mostly work. They had a blessing for rain. They had a blessing for completing a home. No occasion was too menial for blessing. But in particular, they felt compelled to offer a blessing for people, for all people. The life with God has everything to do with people. And so they taught religiously that, that we should thank God for people, people that we get along with easily, but people who are hard for us to get along with as well. Thank you, God, for them. And here's the second hypothesis of the week. Life with God, life with God will help me learn to be grateful for imperfect people 
and imperfect circumstances. Our job is not to try and feel grateful, to manufacture the emotion. Gratitude, again, is a byproduct of this other spiritual reality. What we do is we try to train ourselves to live in that reality, to place our lives in the presence of God and to surrender our will to his. And then when we remember and we pray, we say, God, you're right here. We're not carrying the entire weight of the world on our shoulders. We thank you, God, that we get to be alive, that we have bodies, that we have this world. Thank you for Jesus. And if I wait in my life to express those those sentiments of thanks until I'm surrounded by perfect people and perfect circumstances, I'm going to wait a long time. In fact, I'll wait way too long. And so they would teach that that we're obligated to say a benediction at all times, not just when times are ripe and fruitful. Otherwise, we have, we have this danger, this risk in our lives of only being thankful when things are going our way, when things are good. And when we do that, what happens is our threshold for gratitude goes up and up and up. Being transformed by God means saying that God is at work in my lives even when it feels like things are going down and down, even in bad situations. Romans eight twenty eight, that familiar and famous anthem statement, I know that in all things God is at work for bene, for good. And only God knows for sure what's going to turn out in our lives to produce good things. A lot of times we're going to go through something hard, something painful, something bad. We didn't want to go through it. We didn't choose it. And we don't realize until years later how much we needed. Oh, God, I am so glad that I went through that season in my life. It made me who I am today. And so Rabbi Paul said, we bless God all the time. We give thanks in all circumstances For this is God's design for you. So we sit around tables and we eat our Thanksgiving dinner, whatever that is. Turkey or cuttlefish or depends on your background, I guess. And we go around the table and we name the things that we're thankful for. Thank you for our friends for our house, for our jobs, for the successes that have come our way. But can we say this? That the absence of any of those things, or maybe all of those things, shouldn't prevent us from feeling thankful for the greatest of all gifts? Above all, followers of Jesus, whether they're in plenty or in poverty, whether they're living in palaces or or in prisons, Thank God for the gift of Jesus, for his, for his matchless life, for his unrivaled teachings, for his sacrificial death, for his triumphant resurrection. We say, blessed are you, O Lord. Here's a couple of little experiments. We'll wrap things up. A couple of experiments on being with God in gratitude. If, if our overall goal is to increase the number of moments where we're aware of the goodness of God and living surrendered to him, then here's a couple of things you might want to try this week. Jot them down and outline. The first experiment is to, is to write something. To write a letter. We call it a gratitude letter. 
You think of somebody who's impacted your life, impacted it for good, somebody who you've known probably for quite a while, a friend, a mentor, encourager, somebody without whose influence you would be a different person. And then you take your time and you write them something. Write them a letter telling them why you're grateful to God for them. Don't make it brief. Don't just buy a card to you from me. But say something. 300 words. Make it substantial. You're going to have to go through a few drafts of this thing. And then if you can, if you can, call them up. Say you want to meet with them this week face to face. Don't tell them why. And then when you get there and your coffee's come to the table, take out your letter. Read it to them, word for word. Look them in the eyes while you're reading. Tell them, this is why I'm grateful to God for you. Maybe you've given them a laminated copy that they can take with them when they're done. Before you do this, a couple of rules. Just, just guiding, clarifying principles. You can't do this with somebody who could benefit you financially. <laughs> okay? <laughs> you shouldn't have mixed motives with this thing. Uh, don't let it be with somebody that you're hoping to date and has said no to you before. Hey, let's be clear. But I guarantee if, if you do this with God, you'll be more joyful by the end of the week. I guarantee it. Here's a second little experiment. Pray your own benedictions. So maybe 18 is too many to start with, but, but get up in the morning, tomorrow morning, and write four. Write them down here or whatever piece of paper you can find. And then at night, write four more. And maybe you want to use the simple form that the scriptures have provided. Blessed are you, O Lord, for. Blessed are you, Lord, who gave me this friend that I love. And again, your job is not to try and manufacture feelings of gratitude. I had a pretty bad day yesterday. I woke up pretty grumpy this morning. I don't know. You ever wake up grumpy? One of those mornings I just really didn't want to get up. You know that old saying, there's two kinds of people in the world, people who love to get up in the morning and people who hate people who love to get up in the morning. You know, I, I normally love to get up in the morning. And so I started going through the exercise. I have a body that mostly works. How grateful I am for that. Blessed are you, Lord. I have a mind and I get to learn. So I got up early and I got here early and I did some reading and some studying. I love to learn. Thank you, God, for a mind that can probe the wonders of this world. I listened to Adam and Tracy speaking this morning and thinking about their great desire, their hope to be on the mission field. And what a rich experience that's been. I thought about some of my own experiences and being fortunate enough to, to travel the world. What a gift. People in other centuries never got to do that. Blessed are you, God, for a chance to see your world and its vastness and beauty. And by the time I got to the end of the exercise, I was thinking, you know what? I get to live another day. How great is that? I get another day. Thank you, God. What an unbelievably good God you are to think of this world and a life and a body and, and Jesus above all. And listen, it, it doesn't always happen that way, at least not for me. But it's not about feeling gratitude. My job is to show up 
and to see and to remember and to thank. Maybe try those two little experiments this week. A letter of gratitude and writing your own benedictions. When you wake up, when you go to bed, I, I can just about guarantee that you'll feel better if you do. How can we not pray, right? Have this open in front of you as we do that. You bow your heads now and have a look at that little sheet of paper. I'm not going to speak much right now, but I'm going to invite you to take those words to God, your benefactor, the great God who loves you. Maybe this morning your heart is full and sinking. You're full and you just feel like singing or, or maybe, maybe you feel depleted and your life is sinking. It just doesn't matter. This is a moment to say thank you to him. Let me invite you to do that now. Thank you, God. Blessed are you, Lord. Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Disciples asked Jesus one day, and he taught them. And many of us have learned. If you have learned, would you pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, power and the glory forever and ever.